millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Ella Kemp. And I'm Meg Walters. On the show this week, it's Palm Door winner and Anatomy of a Fall, and I spoke to its star and probably my favourite actor on the planet, Sandra Huller. Things go terribly wrong in the Australian outback in the Royal Hotel, and I also had the pleasure of talking to its director, Kitty Green. And finally, we review a third new release, the evocatively titled How to Have Sex. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, welcome, welcome back to you both. Um, it's been it's been a little while. Should, should we do a little reintro? Meg, you want to go first? Who are you and what have you been up to? Hi, I'm Meg. I'm a freelance writer. I mostly write about film and TV, um, but I do write about also everything else under the sun. <laughs> These days I'm writing a lot of stylist and glamour, which has been really fun. Doing some like film, TV, and also lifestyle stuff for them. I have a piece coming out in Little White Lies today, I think, day of recording, which is exciting. And yeah, I had to know that's what I do. And I'm a Canadian who lives in London. What's the piece in Little White Lies about? It's about girlhood in films this year. So it's like quite a big sweeping look at a lot of the, there's a lot of films this year that focus on like that time in your life, um, whether it's when you're a teenager or you're a young woman and you're like on the verge of entering womanhood and yeah I look I looked at all of those films kind of in the context of culture today I think there's like some really interesting things going on with the way we think about girls in society today Mm -hmm. there's like the TikTok girl trends that are endless and are never going to end apparently (laughs) (laughs) and there's also like on the political social side there's like a lot of quite dark stuff going on so that that's in a nutshell what the piece is on that sounds incredible. Kind of in the intersection of that is that whole girl dinner thing. And I read a really interesting piece about how like girl dinner is actually like a feminist act. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's like a, a part of you can look at it in the sense that it's often women who are hopping aboard these trends. You know, it's not like always teenage girls. It's millennials or even like Gen X women who are looking back on their own experience of girlhood and maybe mm. like reclaiming finding some like joy in it when there are obviously like quite awful signs to being a girl as well there are indeed yes wouldn't go back there for all the money in the world (laughs) what about you what have you been up to uh i i think since the last time i was on the podcast i have been to approximately if my math is correct if my girl math is correct i've been to maybe um 500 film festivals in that time 
or at least it feels that way, which has been good. It's been fun. Uh, I went to Cannes, went to Toronto, Locarno, which I will somehow get to talk about later. Edinburgh, all sorts of things, and London. And for the last month, like everyone else I know, I've had a cold for the last month. Um, but work-wise, I... Oh, I have a new job title since last pod, I think. Um, I'm now the London editor at Letterboxd, which is fun. Doing all the same things as before. So interviewing folks or meeting people in person, putting on screenings, asking people for their four favourites, writing stories and posting silly tweets or whatever they're called now, but I'm calling them tweets. And I still run the editorial platform for Girls on Tops where we champion women in film. So it's quite the week this week. Uh, we're having fun. Well, congratulations on the new York and congratulations on Martin Scorsese joining Letterboxd. Uh, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Funnily enough, so uh, one of the filmmakers that we're talking about today, Molly Manning-Walker, who directed How to Have Sex, I had the privilege of hosting a Q&A with her earlier this week. And the first thing she said to me, we've met before, but the first thing she said to me was like, I think you need a raise. And I was like, what are you talking about? She says, you got Martin Scorsese on Letterboxd. And I said, I wish I had anything to do with it. But yes, I, my personal direct line to Martin Scorsese, I just texted him and yeah, he made an account. That's definitely what happened. Um, fun though. <laughs> yeah, we, we should, should get, get a move on. on. We've, We've got, got three very exciting films from three incredible female directors. And we are three women as well. So a real kind of ovary fest over here. <laughs> First one up is going to be Palm Door Winner and Anatomy of a Fall. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. For the past year, Sandra and her husband Samuel and their 11-year-old son Daniel have lived a secluded life in a remote town in the French Alps. When Samuel is found dead in the snow below their chalet, the police question whether he was murdered or committed suicide. Samuel's suspicious death is presumed murder and Sandra becomes the main suspect. But before we get into the film, here's the conversation I had with its star, Sandra Huller. Uh, Sandra, this is so exciting for me. I cannot tell you what a huge fan of yours I am. Thank you, Lena. Um, yeah, I, I genuinely feel that um, Tony Erdman changed the whole way I view the world. So this is thrilling. Thank you. Yeah, cool. Uh, but like just this year alone, you've got these um, three incredibly well-received projects, you know, with Sissy and I, the Zone of Interest, Anatomy of a Fall. Uh, like what is your process to choose what it is that you're going to work on? It's a very intuitive process that I can't really explain. Mm -hmm. There are always different reasons why I do something. One, sometimes it's the character, sometimes it's the director that I've known for a long time and I want, we want to spend time together again. It's sometimes really simple. Sometimes it's something that I'm really afraid of and I don't know if I'm capable of doing it and I want to find out. Sometimes it's a place I want to be. Um, sometimes it's an energy that I want to be close to or a question that I want to ask or have answered or it's always very, very, very different reasons. And the reason that these projects are so close is just because of COVID. They wouldn't never have started in this row. It would never have happened that way. So I thank COVID. Yeah, had, had, yeah. 
had to had to be a silver lining, I suppose. Um, but you also now, you know, not just with like three big films in um, a single year, but all these accolades that are coming out for each one. You know, does does that mean a lot to you? I imagine something like the Palm d'Or is like a huge moment, but like all of them are getting like huge amounts of attention. Uh, both films were so, so successful at Cannes, definitely, yeah, it, of course it means something, but it, yeah, I always think, yeah, I cannot take it to my grave, so it's also, it's important, and at the same time, it's not at all. We, everybody in the team really enjoyed the time that we had in Cannes, and the premieres and the screenings, and the conversations that we had about it, the love of the audience that we felt really strongly, yeah, so that there were so many beautiful how do you say encounters like yeah, mm. meet, meeting people that were really touched and yeah that's that's very important have, have you always been able to just follow your intuition when it comes to selecting projects or is it something that like maybe after like a tony admund you know you just get enough kind of being offered to you where you can become very selective is it the opposite? I mean, that's like, that's an ideal situation to always follow your intuition. And I, I was always able to select a little bit. Yeah, I think I, I strongly believe in having a choice. So yeah, in the beginning after Tony, there were a lot of scripts with people in corporate things like in offices and people in situations of power or, you know, so I kind of felt I I kind of did that. I don't want to explore it any longer. I want to do something else. And it took some time, some time until I found out what I wanted to do. And so, yeah. Does, I mean, you're kind of working with these acclaimed auteurs, but does, does the sort of lure of like the Hollywood blockbuster appeal to you at all going and doing a big two and a half hour green screen superhero, you know, anything like that? Somebody asked me that today before, and I asked him back why he wants to know because it's such a I, I, I don't understand the question, but um, now I do, <laughs> and I think it's not something that I would exclude, but it's not a fantasy of mine. Mm-hmm. I love doing sports, and I wouldn't mind training like a few months to become a I don't know, whatever fighting person and whatever, but I don't know, I, I can't say it from that point. Well, I mean just this year alone I'm very glad you've made the choices that you have it's been very enriching but like in this film in particular just to kind of focus a bit more on anatomy of a fall you're speaking in three different languages um and like what was the experience of like acting across these different ones where there's misinterpretations but also you're not in your mother tongue I found it really enriching I found it I found it very interesting for perspective. I found it um, interesting as an actress, of course, because exploring how it feels to to play in different languages, of course, is yeah. It always gives me something, and it makes it easy to to show so many different sides or so many different like perspectives on the character. And to see someone struggle with this, with a thing like language is something so so profound, something that so many people can relate with, mm-hmm. with the fear of not being understood, especially in such a situation. That's also something not everybody is, can relate to, but um, that that we want to make ourselves be heard and to be yeah understood and to to struggle to find the words for it in a language, which is really humbling also and I um I love this experience and I love languages and so uh, yeah I hope I can 
do it again sometime. I mean, are there any kind of distinct um, challenges between like performing in English versus performing in French as a second language? Um, I was more familiar with English. I'm not perfect in it. I'm always looking for words and I make mistakes. But um, I grew up with MTV and I always watched, you know, all these shows and I was learning song lyrics by heart and I was always interested in that language and French came much later. I had it in school and then it came back to me, I think, I don't know, four years ago or something, I decided to learn it again. And after that, like the whole French movie film thing started, but it it's not so easy for me and I'm still not fluent. Uh, uh, but working with a French director, were there any kind of like miscommunications because of like the no. way that you kind of had the language? No, they weren't. Uh, miraculously, no. There were two languages on set. Everybody was switching all the time uh, between French and English. And I understand French pretty well now, mm-hmm. but sometimes I can't like finish a sentence because one word is missing or because I don't want to make a mistake, but I understood what she was saying all the time. And I think our form of communication is anyway, like sort of all over the place with everything we got, you know. So it's, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I've read interviews with the two of you um, kind of talking about this collaboration and it seems to be quite like a profound connection that the two of you have. I mean, what was it that maybe, I guess it kind of formed on the set of Sybil that kind of made you two connect? Well, I saw a short film of uh, Justine in 2011 or 12, I can't remember exactly, um, at the Berlinale. And... I started to be a fan of her work at that moment, so I've I've been following her for quite some time. And um, so I kind of had an idea what she would be interested in anyway. And um, I don't know, sometimes these things happen, that people meet and they understand each other in a magical way. I don't know why it is we have the same age. I don't know what it is, but it's really beautiful and I'm thankful for it. Yeah, it's it's such a complicated character. It does feel that like you guys would have to be on such a kind of same page in order for this to like cohere. Do you, do you think you understood the character in the same way from the beginning? I'm not sure about that, mm-hmm. really, because Justine from the beginning had more information than I had. Um, and also she knew much more about the judicial system in France. She really studied it and she, of course, had like, I don't know how many versions of the script. There were so many decisions that she had already made and then undone. And um, so she knew much more about the character than I did. But I like this sort of mystery also, and I don't, I'm not the person who wants to solve everything in a character or know everything in a character because I strongly believe that we can't do that in human beings as well. So it's kind of a like a grand, grand grandeur of fantasy of somebody, of an actor to say, I really know my character inside mm-hmm. out. I don't believe that. Never happens. It can only make it smaller, in my opinion. But we tried a lot of things on set. So there were always different possibilities and what light she would appear if that would be a scene where we would be with her or where we would turn against her it's just eat small adjustments yeah if somebody's really aggressive in the scene or if they're really quiet or if they're getting emotional and so we tried all of that in different moments 
so that Justine would have the possibility to decide in the editing which way she wanted to go with her. Yeah, it just, it walks such a beautifully fine line of ambiguity that I just, you can almost picture the like worst version of this film when you're watching it. You're just like, oh, a lesser director would have done like easy answers, <laughs> you know, a big twist. Yeah, maybe, maybe there will be. Sometimes they do some, this sort of adaptations, I don't know. But um, yeah, I know what you mean. But I think that Justine consciously avoided this sort of choice. And it doesn't mean that American court dramas are bad or something. It's just not what she wanted. She wanted to show the French system and she wanted to show the flaws and all the things that don't work. And that's something that I'm really familiar with that I I love to show too in humans and everything. So it does also feel that like this sort of plot could have like one big, you know, melodramatic moment monologue for you. And instead it's much more kind of consistently intriguing but was there still like a scene that you came into it having read the script getting ready to shoot that you were particularly excited to shoot no i feel the crying in the car is sort of a monologue well i mean you know crying is cathartic i suppose for both the person and the audience yeah maybe sometimes it's used to show that a woman that is not really likable has feelings too i hate that when i see that in films oh she has feelings Oh, I didn't know. Um, it's kind of a, yeah, kind of a thing that you have to do to finally get the hearts of the audience. And it did, it wasn't that way. I strongly felt that Justine didn't didn't do it because of that. It was written as a panic attack, and there are a million sorts of panic attacks, and she had this sort of panic attack. It was not written as she bursts out crying, which is always very suspicious when I read it, and I was like, hey, what? Why? I decide when I cry. It's not something that's supposed to be written in a, you know. Yeah, but she didn't use it for anything. Uh, that's what I liked about it. And no, there wasn't a particular scene that I was looking forward to it. I loved everything about it. Well, I mean, that, that whole idea of like having to make female characters likable, like, do you think that's still something that is like made, you know, when we have female protagonists, there is like that pressure that we have to make them sort of softer in a way that we don't necessarily with the male ones. Yeah, I, I only feel it when you don't do it. Then mm. you feel that something is different than before. When you consciously decide against it, it is a change. I recently saw this documentary about uh, male gaze in films, uh, Brainwashed, is it called? Yeah, yeah um, I've seen that. Yeah. There's some things that I could argue about, but um, I didn't know about this. I didn't know about those techniques. I didn't know um, about the long, long, long tradition of showing women in film in a certain way as an object. And of course, Justine doesn't do it. I just recently found out, I mean, I've been doing it and the camera was in front of me, but we only see her from, most of the time she's filmed from underneath. Mostly women are filmed from above. So she's bigger than us. And of course I was sitting a bit high, but still it's something very unusual to see. And I was very happy that I discovered that, that she made that choice. Yeah, to not go into that trap of, we have to believe her because, I don't know, uh, you have to do that to, to make people believe that you're a good person or that you're not guilty or whatever. She never, she never did this kind of thing. I mean, guilt is such a strong 
theme throughout the film because it's, you know, whether or not she's done the thing that she's accused of, there's this idea that she should still feel guilt because she's failed as a partner regardless of what the outcome was. I mean, do you think that's kind of part of her being a woman? Like, you know, that that is gendered in the way that we kind of view female characters as still being responsible for the outcomes of what happens to the men around them? Yes, it's kind of a... It's told to be a genetic code that we are, you know, it's like the basics that we're talking about. Like we're caring and that we can forgive more easily and all that stuff. But all that is so exhausting. It's just something that it's not something that you just do. It's also a conscious decision to do that because you feel the world would be better if there would be one more person my English is not enough to mm. if you would forgive one more person, you know, but it's not something that you wake up and you just do. But um, I think men can do this, can make the same effort. There was this essay recently, was it The New Yorker? Why women forgive and men are forgiven? I haven't read it, but that sounds about right. Yeah, and I found that really interesting. And it says that it's not something that, that forgiveness is not something that... Um, but it's off topic now. Uh, it's not something that we should assume is always the right thing to do. There are things that are unforgivable and it's okay to live without forgiving someone. It's totally fine. And I have to think about it because it's like really different impulse. But I would always try to, you know, to f- make peace with, with, with people. But for her, for Sandra, she should still feel guilty because she failed as a partner. I mean, he failed as a partner too and he just went away. I mean, what is that? Um, I never saw it that way, really. Um, I just felt that, um, of course, the verdict doesn't tell us if she really did it or not. It just tells it in front of the law Mm. uh, that people can still make their assumptions um, and have their fantasies about her and judge her for as long as whatever, as as long as they want. I mean, there is is that very, very insidious thing of um, the way that, like, women are portrayed in the media particularly when it comes to crime violence that it's almost like it's a bit sexy it's a bit salacious and stuff and we stop to see the human I mean was part of the appeal of this that you were actually coming back to a very human story at the core of it yeah I mean yeah I I think that uh, I think it tells us something about first of all we don't know everything about our partner and second of all it's always just a little glimpse we get once we look into a relationship you can never see the full story and um it asks the question if it's right to put it in public in the first place this, this sort of case is it something that people should see or the sh- like the child should be present at or you know all these things is it right that a person and i don't i wouldn't gender that at a person that has experienced this sort of horror in their life needs to defend her lifestyle in front of court is something that is uh, to me it's unthinkable and yet it happens all the time because people include all sorts of information to their judgment and where is the border of law or what is necessary to to find out if somebody did something or not the the idea of justice is very interesting in this film the way it's kind of perceived as not sort of being separate to the events themselves i mean finding out about how the french legal system worked and how 
this sort of person would be treated? Did it change your perspective on that at all? Well, the German judicial system is still different from that. So it's kind of a, um, I don't, I didn't think about it any longer because I don't live in France. So it was kind of, a, you know, not, not really my, my business. Mm. But um, what I did think about, and also that has to do with the reactions of the audience, especially women um, that tell all sorts of stories in the, uh, after they saw the film, personal stories, some say it's my life that I see here. I have to deal with the same conflict and it's unsolvable. And um, others say to me that they feel like she's a bad mother or how I feel about her treating her son that way. And I don't understand what they mean because I find she's really respectful with him. So there are all sorts of projections going on. Yeah, that's more of the thing that, I, that I'm dealing with that I get. Like the, there is also judgment going on about certain details and the reflection that we wanted to have, that we wanted people to have on their own behavior and on their own judgment towards other people sometimes doesn't even happen. It's, it's rare, but sometimes, yeah, people just don't put it into, like when they judge her, they don't put it into, like they the don't do what we wanted them to do. Let's say it like that. God, that's that's really devastating to me to hear that people will came away from that film and judged her as a mother. But oh my goodness, okay, that's what I'll be thinking about the rest of the day. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I so admire your work, and it's been so enriching to me. And like, yeah, just thank you so much for your time. And very, very good and interesting questions. And thank you very much. Ella, like part of the 500 festivals that you went to this year, you'd mentioned Cannes was one of them and this was the big winner there. Do you think kind of worthy of that prize? Um, mm, yes and no. I So I didn't see the film in Cannes, actually. It was one of the only ones that, like the big ones that people were talking about that I missed because I had to take the day off to interview Wes Anderson, um, which I'm not complaining about. Um, so yeah, at the time I knew that everyone was talking about it and... You know, I like Justin Trier a lot. I think she's a really cool filmmaker. Same with Sandra Hula. I ended up, yeah, I caught up with the film in August. And I think it's good. I personally would have given the palm, and I still stand by this, to Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest, which won the jury prize, if I'm not mistaken. Which um, also has Sandra Huller in it. Which also, right. Um, you know, of the two Sandra Huller films, that's the one that I would have gone for personally. But I don't make the rules. Uh, but no, I mean, I think it's very good. I like, I'm happy. I'm happy that, a, you know, that a woman won the palm door again. That's cool. Um, and I think, I think the film is solid. Like, I am... I'm a bit surprised in the sense that I think when I watched it, I was I, underwhelmed is the wrong word, but I, I I think it's quite like it's a very subtle film. I think it's not it's not as explosive as in your face as some other Palm Door winners that I would have expected. Which is funny because I just thought of Coriada's Shoplifters as I said that, which is not explosive in any way. Um, however. Yeah, I was a bit surprised that it won. Um, I'm happy for what it means. But for me, in competition at Cannes this year, there were other titles that, I don't know, I thought just kind of blew everything out the water. Um, good film, though, as, <laughs> as everyone agrees on. <laughs> well, so long as Sandra Hilliff is in the winning film, I, I, I'm all happy. I've been obsessed with her since... Uh... Tony Erdman. And yeah, she, she she never lets me down. What about you, Meg? What did you make of Anatomy of a Fall? I mean, it's it it's a it's an unusual one, but I absolutely loved it. 
I really liked it. Yeah, I actually saw this for the first time last night <laughs> on my TV. So yeah, I missed it. I was only at London Film Festival this year. And I yeah, I haven't had a chance to see it yet until last night. And yeah, I really, really liked it. It is definitely super subtle, but I think it's just such an interesting dive into the thorniness of like a relationship and of mm. how the truth can get so tangled as soon as you start, you know, looking at people's subjective perceptions of their relationships with other people and trying to put together some kind of like objectifiable truth on that like I think I, it immediately made me think of have you guys seen the staircase the document yes. the Netflix documentary I mean it's mm -hmm. such a similar story in that like one half of a couple falls seemingly and the other one either did it or like doesn't know what happened and then um you know like the blood spatter analysis and like all of these like really detailed investigations that seem to almost bring you further from the truth and closer to it somehow mm -hmm. um yeah and I I I just love how like you think you've gotten sort of to the middle of how tangled this web is but you just like it keeps digging you further and further in yeah I think I think future historians will study the true crime brain phenomenon where like there's sort of, it almost, I, I think it's happened to the culture, but I also feel like it's happening within like the justice system of like, we expect kind of neat solutions and kind of like gotcha moments where it all unlocks. And this just seemed to be like the most wonderful counterpoint to that. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that feeds into a little bit why I was, I'm going to say I was underwhelmed. I think it's because there had been so much hype, which we've discussed many times on this podcast and in other places, but I think when there is so much hype from a festival or any other sort of preview setting, I expected like a big, like, oh shit moment. And this film doesn't quite give you that. And it's good, you know, um, like I'm looking forward to rewatching it because I think obviously it's so, it's so rich and it's very, very complex. And I think when you, you know, I mean, I think when you go into a film expecting something e either because you know, this isn't based on a book, but if you read the book, you think, oh, okay, I'm waiting for that story beat to drop. Or if you've heard something that happens, however good the film is, if you're waiting for one specific thing to happen and it doesn't happen, you will always be disappointed, which reflects more on you slash me, the viewer, I think. But yeah, that was definitely a case of Anatomy of a Fall. But I will say, so where I did end up seeing the film was at the Locarno Film Festival and it played in the Piazza Grande, which is basically this beautiful square in Locarno, which is like a stunning little town in Switzerland. Yeah, Piazza Grande is like a lovely little square, but basically it turns into this massive outdoor cinema during the festival. And um, the size of the screen is, I cannot, I don't know the dimensions, but it felt bigger than literally any screen I've been in in London, except IMAX maybe. But, um, and also the sound system is incredible because they've literally got complete surround sound, but it's insane to say that because the surround sound is like speakers attached to buildings that people just like live in and restaurants and stuff like that in this, you know, rural picturesque town. Um, and yeah, it's 8,000 seats. So yeah, we were there. And, but the amazing thing is that everyone in the square, you know, the very functioning touristy popular square with restaurants and everything, when a film is on, everyone respects it. So all of the restaurants basically just go silent. And, you know, like in parts where, when that one needle drop is not playing in Anatomy before, it's quite a quiet film. Like there are lots of moments of, you know, and it was complete silence in that square, which is crazy considering the number of people in the audience, but also people who are just coming and going because it's a public square. Um, so I think like that was both a testament to, 
you know, what Locarno have set up with that square and also just how much anatomy before like really keeps you like gripped and in, even even if it is a bit more um, subtle in that way. So um, yeah, it was very, like I felt very lucky to kind of watch the film in that way for sure. Yeah, when you first started, I was like, I can't think of a worse way to watch this film. No, <laughs> like, I know. Well, honestly, when I saw it listed. No, that sounds great. Yeah, the when I saw it listed her. at the festival, I thought, I was like, oh, you know, I haven't seen it, so I want to watch it here, but I generally don't love outdoor cinemas. But um, it was honestly, like, it, it was one of the best, you know, viewing both sound and vision experiences I've had indoors or outdoors. Like, it was all just, I don't know how they do it, honestly. Um, so, yeah, big recommend to that screen. All right, well, uh, we'll be pitching a Live from Locarno podcast for next year. You have uh, to. Because that sounds wonderful. Like, mate, this quite... Um, there is something that I found interesting in this of, like, you know, we have to talk about female characters get kind of passed through this idea of, like, likability and stuff, and that is also the case in life, not just in, like, cinema and uh, stuff. And, like, you know, obviously she's not the sort of likable damsel that I suppose perhaps, like, the justice system and the society in general teaches well. I mean, like, how did you read her character? Um, I think, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point because I what really, like, struck me was like the prosecution lawyer's whole mm. tack was kind of proving her to be this like controlling, domineering woman who had somehow like usurped her husband's position in the family, you know, like he should be the one in control, but now she's the one, you know. So I just thought that was a really interesting kind of subtle look at like that brand of sexism that can happen where women are judged for being too maybe too masculine or too yeah not not what like wife like enough and yeah she's there's there's stuff she's not a perfect um a perfect person or like a nice person even uh, a lot of the time and I think the film is all the more stronger for it yeah it's it's interesting when it becomes like that becomes like the the crux of the the case because you know it, it almost becomes like a trial of her of her personality and her like femininity almost yeah the the idea kind of like her success is almost like an act of aggression yeah I mean it it, relationships are always so complicated and and like knowing how to split time especially when both people are working or like creative people as well but um that idea that like that she owes him time as his wife to do more around the house or to to do this or that and as she says you know I I do I do do things but um yeah yeah god it's not a not a great week if you kind of want to feel terribly positive about what the men are up to um <laughs> Ella, like without spoiling it what did you make of the ending um i think it's an ending that plays better with every minute that you think about it i think it has it had to grow on me for sure because, yeah, because like Justine Trier is so good at building up tension throughout in, you know, very sort of complex ways that she's like, I, I felt a bit hoodwinked. I felt like it was really leading towards something and then something else happened. Um, but then the more I kind of sat with it and was talking about it, I think it's such a good film to talk about. Well, you know, when people have seen it and you don't want to spoil it. But I think it's such a good film to talk about and sort of debate over. I, I do think that like one of my favorite quotes about like film criticism and discussion and debate and anything is always when 
a, like a piece of art or anything can make you say this is co- this is where the conversation starts not where it ends and I feel like the ending of this film really really does that where I feel like Justin Tree is kind of going like okay I've said my bit now your turn which I think is quite a power move I like it I do think that the winner of the film and this isn't a spoiler in any way the winner of the film is 100% um, Snoop the dog who comes off amazingly. Well, this is this was another thing about not seeing the film in Cannes. So in Cannes every year, there is a ceremony called the Palm Dog, which um, you would be surprised if you've never heard of it, how deadly serious people... Like, this isn't a joke. I'm not, <laughs> you know. Um, and it, it was the, the, um, the best dog performances of the festival. And, the, and there's always many contenders. Like, there's never sort of lacking, you know any pups for the palm dog and the dog whose name I can't remember, but the name, but the dog who messy, that's right. Sorry. Um, so messy, the dog who plays Snoop, the dog in anatomy for one. And at the time I was like, Oh, cool. Like, you know, messy looks like a very handsome dog. And then you watch the film and it's like, Oh my God, you are, you're doing everything. <laughs> and it's, it's so cool. <laughs> like it's, you know, cause it, it is, I do genuinely believe, jokes aside, that it is one thing to have like a pet in the film who, you know, it's nice to see them because it makes you feel better because they're just cute. But then to actually have a pet that is driving the narrative forward and doing stuff is so cool. And I know I'm saying all this while smiling, but like, it's not funny. (laughs) Messy and Snoop are just so good. So that was my big takeaway, I think. Yeah, I mean... Hard to kind of uh, hold your own against a Sandra Huller on screen, but yeah, he uh, he, he, he did some scene stealing. But yeah, we should we've got two more kind of what's wrong with the men movies to get onto. Uh, Ella, do you want to get some scores on this one uh, in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? Uh, so I'm gonna go. I think I'm gonna go four, three, four. Um, expectations were quite high. I I hadn't seen any of Justin Trier's previous films so I didn't fully know what to expect but heard a lot of good things um yeah three purely because I think I had sort of put expectations on the film that the film never asked me to um so I was expecting something that it wasn't and then four because it's great and I realized that I'm the problem and it's a very good film uh, in the words of our feminist leader Taylor Swift we're the it's problem me. it's us to be Hi. <laughs> to paraphrase Meg, what about you? Um, I think I'll go like a solid triple four. I was really excited to see it. I mean, I haven't had much time to like reflect on it as I watched it about 12 hours ago. <laughs> but um, yeah, the, I, having spoken about it today, I, I do think my opinions about it are holding. Um, I thought it was, yeah, really good. It surprised me too. Um, I think maybe because I like wasn't really expecting like a gotcha moment I was like quite happy while watching it to sit with like the uncertainty of everything I actually think rather depressingly all of my scores today are going to be about the same so four 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 I I like movies um (laughs) this I thought this was uh really a great film I don't my criteria for giving anything of five is that it kind of in some way changes my life and I don't think it quite got there but um i was very happy that this subtle complex work is getting the great honors that it does and you know sandra huller deserves to be in every palm door winner every year so like yeah let's keep that pattern going um (laughs) even if maybe like you 
Ella. I did slightly prefer the Jonathan Glazer, but never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Hopefully, Messi makes it into the next Palme d'Or winner as well. <laughs> oh yes, what a reunion that would be. Next up, it's the Royal Hotel. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Canadians Hannah and Liv are best friends backpacking in Australia. After they ran out of money, Liv, looking for an adventure, convinces Hannah to take a temporary live-in job at the Royal Hotel, a pub in a remote outback mining town. But soon Hannah and Liv find themselves trapped in an unnerving situation that grows rapidly out of control. Before we get into the film, here's my conversation with director Kitty Green. What's it been like doing the press for this? Because, I mean, it, it's quite nice that in some way, just behind you, there is a photograph of uh, Julia and Jessica. But, mm. yeah, it must be strange doing it all alone. Yeah, I guess. Weirdly, I mean, the assistant had its own trouble with being the pandemic and things mm -hmm. like that, so it was hard to kind of do press then too. So this is... I'm just used to there's always something that goes wrong whenever I release a movie, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it's it's fine. I just... I'm, I'm kind of used to it. I just don't like the the camera stuff, you know, but the rest is fine. Oh, being on the other side of it, like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, that's not why I got into this business. Um, but am I uh, right in thinking that this, the, the film has some basis in the documentary Hotel uh, Coolgardie, mm -hmm. is it? I mean, how did you first come to that documentary? I was on, like, a film festival jury and I had to watch maybe 10 Australian docs as part of that and it was sort of, like, the seventh one and I was, like, kind of, you know, when you're sort of falling asleep and mm -hmm. you, <laughs> you take notice and it was really uh, something different. I think I just hadn't seen Australia represented that way through that uh, lens, I guess, which is young women but also foreign women mm -hmm. in, in kind of trying to figure the culture out in their own way and saying, standing up for, to it and saying no and um, saying, telling people that when they disagreed with certain things. I thought all that was kind of interesting and, like, maybe coming off the back of The Assistant, I was 
which was sort of about an acceptance of a system being rotten. It was like mm -hmm. interesting to me to to explore something where there's actually women going, hang on, I'm I don't know if I'm ready to put up with this. Yeah, I mean, they they I guess some of the comparisons that I've seen have been like wake and fright of like the idea of like the outback being a place where it's like you look into the eyes of it and it kind of turns mm. the, the abyss turns on you and you become monstrous as well. <laughs> Do you have any like inspirations in terms of like outback movies? Not really. I mean, it's hard because we a lot of those movies where you see young women in the outback, they're, they're murdered or attacked mm -hmm. or assaulted. And we were trying to, I guess, challenge all that. So we took a lot of the setup and we took a lot of the premise and we're kind of definitely nodding at the genre sort of horror or whatever it is uh, early on. But then we're sort of trying to push against it and make our own film about the things that we think... Um, well, the things that we want to explore, which is to do with this kind of bad behaviour that doesn't necessarily cross the line, but dances on that line, essentially, the whole time. I mean, it, it sort of, it doesn't feel like it's just a portrait of this specific place. There's a sort of ambiguous, alluded to, bad thing that happened mm. in Canada that in some ways they're fleeing from. Um, was there a reason that you kept what that was, um, you know, ambiguous? First, like, here's the thing. If they'd come from a background, like Thelma and Louise, they've, there's been a previous sort of attack or assault or whatever happens mm -hmm. there, and they're kind of coming and it's sort of... It, people can kind of excuse their behaviours like a revenge as for, for that. And what we wanted was a set of women who were just saying no. You know, it didn't matter what had happened in their past. It didn't matter where they'd come from. This behaviour's not OK and we shouldn't have to put up with it. You know, so that to me was really important that that was what they, they were just dealing with what was in front of them versus some past trauma that's feeding into the way they're acting or behaving. So I wanted to touch on something. I wanted a reason for Jess's character to be drinking that much. I felt like she needed to kind of have a story she wanted to get out of her, but I didn't feel like it was necessary to really dive into the details. Both her and I sort of discussed about how we'd pull it together and what, what that was, but, um, yeah, that was sort of the way. I didn't think more backstory was going to do much in terms of, you know, elevating the craft or whatever. No, I mean, I, I, I love the movie, so, like, I love Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, the dynamic between them, like, they're very convincing as, like, best friends that would do anything for one another, but very different young women. I mean, like, how did you view the relationship between them? I, I don't know. So whenever I've travelled or backpacked with a friend, there's always somebody that has to like look at Google Maps and like figure out when you check in and figure out when you check out and like deal with the stuff. And the other person can relax a little and enjoy a little and drink a little. And, and I feel like it felt like that felt very natural to me that the kind of duo would split that way. Um, and then we had, but there's also something about making an Australian movie where I think Jess is character who's a little more Australian in her attitude and a little more accepting of the culture and accepting of and really trying to give it a go which mm -hmm. is sort of what as Australians we encourage people to do um, and Julia's saying no and I think that kind of the kind of resistance is interesting to me and that yeah they play it plays quite differently in the states or in, in Australia and I'm still figuring out how it's playing here but um, it feels it's sort of yeah, the dynamic sort of works differently depending on where you're from, I think. I guess alcohol culture also is so different in all of those places. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of wrote it down as being like cultural alcoholism. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be fair to say. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I. Uh, but here's the thing about it: it's like 
I think that sort of behaviour, everything in the movie happens in a in a, in a college bar in mm -hmm. America or in a pub in even a bar in, you know, London can, like, it's just about, it's about that point when everyone's had a little too much to drink and everything's about to spiral out of control. And how do we stop it from ever spiralling? Like, how do we just, how do we say no at that point and not have to accept what's coming next, essentially? Yeah, I, we, it, it's terrifying. It kind of, it's a weird comparison, but I almost felt the way about this as I did as Oppenheimer, where I kind of realised leaving it that there's been this fear that I'd lived with my entire life, like oh, nuclear wow. annihilation or men. Yeah. <laughs> and like I had to like confront that. Yeah. I mean, it's, was there a bit, a kind of an idea that you would insert a kind of heroic man into this at all rather than no but trust me there were actors that wanted to play the part and save uh. the women in the end like we got that from like people were interested in playing the role but said oh, i'd love them to come back and like fix the place and figure out the girls i was like no that's so not right um but yeah no yeah. What, sorry, what was the question? Just like, I, mean, you, you, I think you kind of speak to something that a lot of people live with their entire lives with this yeah. film and it almost like shines a light on it in a way that's quite difficult to confront, I guess. Yeah. Um... That's not a question. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, I, it's, it's, it's very scary at times. Mm. And like the film, uh, the setting itself to me kind of felt a bit like the Bates Motel. I mean, how did you kind of envisage this pub? Did you build it? Did you find it? Uh, we found the exterior. I wanted a two-story pub. I loved the image of it. And I thought like it's very kind of iconically Australian in that way, but also had this kind of Western sort of thing going on, which was interesting. Um, and so we found one, but it was actually the first one we saw. Everyone's like, how did you find this pub? We're like, we literally just drove out of town and it was there. It's a few hours north of Adelaide. And the challenge was mostly like the budget meant we couldn't afford to keep everyone out there. So we had to build an interior in a set in the city just because it was no way to... Um, not only could we not afford to pe keep people out there, we couldn't afford to shut a pub down for three weeks anywhere. They would lose too much money in doing that. So we had to kind of create our own set, um, which was actually worked out quite well. We were worried about, but my production designer, Leah, is really brilliant and she pulled it off and somehow made it feel lived in and real. And um, yeah, so that was a real, that kind of worked out quite well. And then the space just had, I don't know, you fill that space with men all wearing the same uniform and it, it gets very scary very quickly and like, it was also COVID-y and everyone was breathing very on each other. It felt very scary just walking through it, I think, in a way. Even though it was safe and we kind of had created a safe environment, it still stick that many people in a room together. Um, and it's a little, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, I don't, I don't have to work hard to get the tension out of that, you know what I mean? It exists. Um, but in terms, I mean, when they go out of the pub into the kind of landscape, oh, I mean, yeah, you've got that. this outback that's beautiful and vast and terrifying still mm. um like working you were working with the same cinematographer i believe michael latham yeah um like what did you kind of visually want to capture with those outside scenes i mean the place is so claustrophobic mm -hmm. and but this idea that when you walk outside it's equally terrifying even though it's so vast you know and it, but still the remoteness of it and just the isolation really adds to the tension and the things we're building so even though i feel like the events inside the pub could happen anywhere in the world I, we're adding another layer of, of terror in, in presenting it in that kind of setting, I guess. It's also visually really striking and I had wanted to make an Australian film and it's, so it's great to kind of really take advantage of the landscape when, if you're out there, like, you know, go 
go wide, you know. Uh, not a place I'm in a rush to visit. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll, yeah. I might recover. Um, but, um, yeah, and finally I wanted to ask you, there's one of my bugbears in films is people are so bad at performing being drunk. Like, oh. it's almost like they've, they just, I, I don't know whether it's because actors don't notice what they're like when they're drunk. Like, yeah. Yeah. But, like, what direction did you give people in terms of, like, performing just being absolutely wasted? Someone gave me a good tip, which is a drunk person's always trying to pretend to be sober. Okay. So it's like this you've got to kind of work against it and almost try and pretend you can handle it, but you can't. And so there's that was a really good trick. I don't know, some of them... I kind of let everyone do their own thing. I'm sure a few of them had a few sips of something before they got into it. We That wasn't allowed, but I'm sure it went, you can't really stop it all from going on. Um, but I don't know, I mean, each of them, we, we cast really well and Hugo Weaving, who plays probably the drunkest of the lot, was just mm -hmm. so phenomenally brilliant that he just did it and it was just incredible and watching him do it was wonderful and stumbling everywhere and and then we call cut and he's just such a gentleman and like so composed and it was such a wild kind of yeah he's so brilliant um so we were very fortunate I think we just cast the right way and got the right kind of people involved and and yeah and I think a few of them I mean, Dan Henschel, who plays Dolly, he took a lot of the kind of extra, the supporting cast out for beers and sort of spoke to them a mm -hmm. fair bit. And I think I think having kind of different people capped in each area of the bar meant that it felt quite safe and quite controlled and like everyone was on the same team, essentially, and understood what we were doing. So, yeah. Well, well thank you very much. That's good to know that Hugo Weaving is lovely. I was about to kind of throw all the men out with the bathwater. No, they're, like, no, they're, they're all lovely, <laughs> by the way. They're all lovely, I have to say. We got a good Don't believe bunch. you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, we had a good time. Thank That's you sure. so much. Thank That's you. Brilliant. Yeah, thanks. So, babe, I came into this like super hype. I love the assistant so, so much. Were you, were you a fan of Kitty Green's? Yeah, the assistant was amazing. And I think this is like a, such a natural continuation of, of her, her sort of work and style. And I mean, she does a great job of showing sort of the reality of, of life as a young woman today in sort of horrific ways that are painful to watch often. Uh, I really liked this. Yeah. Um, I mean, I used to work at pubs and stuff and as a Canadian in the UK, that was like a bit of a culture shock as well. Just like the whole, I know it's very different probably to Australia, but like pub culture here is, is quite different to what Canadians working in like restaurants or bars might experience, I think, uh, depending on where you work, obviously. But um, yeah, it's, it's like working in hospitality as a young woman, especially when there's a bar with stools with regulars on them who come and sit there every day and like you can't you're kind of trapped there in that situation and while usually you are like physically safe um these girls well may not be ultimately um it, it can feel and I think this film does a really good job of capturing that feeling of feeling like you're kind of trapped in this really uncomfortable position and you don't really have the tools to to stop it yeah um yeah no i'm with you i worked in hospitality for like a, a really long time and that sort of pressure to perform i suppose being so um kind and sweet at all times and having zero boundaries and you know oh god again wouldn't go back to my 20s or my late teens for all the money in the world 
but Ella, for you, I mean, like this is, I mean, not only was I excited that it's Kitty Green, but also love a 90 minute runtime. <laughs> was that like how do you think it did with kind of like delivering a story within like a very taut time frame I love this film I actually forgot it was 90 minutes because like until you said it because it feels much longer to me and I say that as a compliment it I I don't know I think it fits so much in um it's really I feel like the assistant was amazing. It was very, very subtle, very subdued. I feel like I'm repeating the same words for every film, but it's true. Um, and it was like a lot of like simmering tension. And to me, the Royal Hotel feels like Kitty saying, okay, well, all right, I earned your respect with that. Now I'm going to have some fun, which feels strange to say, because I will say that every, many people I spoke to who've seen the film, and I truly hate to generalize, but I am literally like going off conversations I've had every man I've spoken to who's seen this film was like, oh my God, that was so stressful. Or oh, I felt like a horror film. I couldn't watch it. And like, I got to the end of the film and I was like, that was quite fun. There was, the, you know, the, there's, there is a lot of tension in it. And, you know, there is, um, the threat of violence is always there. But I do think that uh, it's very entertaining. Like it goes very quickly. The 90 minutes go very quickly, but it also packs so much in and there's so much there's so much personality and there's and there's so much drama but also in a fun way that um yeah I think it's so well executed and just like it felt really really tight to me and very well uh like there's no there's no fat on it I think earns its runtime I kind of want to watch it as a tv show like I want to see different episodes of the people well you know it's also a documentary right Yeah. yeah 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 so I haven't seen the documentary which I would like to but I feel like, you know, those, like that kind of framework where it is, um, you know, a sort of one location, strange things happen in this place, people come and go and stuff. You know, I think that is well poised to kind of have more stories within it. I mean, that won't happen. But um, anyway, all that to say, it's good. It's entertaining. I could watch more of it. Yeah, I, I found myself really believing, even though they're such different people in this like bond between Hannah and Liv. Like, even though they're kind of on quite divergent paths, I sort of really bought them as best friends who would do anything for one another. I think also, like, it's it's so fun because obviously Julia Garner was um, the, the main actor in The Assistant. And I think it's always cool when you do kind of see, like, a relationship like that developing between the director and their, and their star. You know, like Emma Seligman and Rachel Senna and Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro. Um, but, you know, I think... Like Julia Garner and Kitty Green have a really good, like very interesting rapport, and and yeah, and like Jessica Henwick who plays Liv is like very very different, and again she brings a lot of that, like a lot of the energy, and again some of that fun, even if it's misplaced and misguided, that the assistant didn't have and, and shouldn't have had. But I think that really suits this kind of so- story to have those different personalities. I know we have to move on, but I want to shout out to people in this film who are not women. It's so sorry. Ew. I'm so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, but you know what? I do also think that like, and we'll come on to this with How to Have Sex. I do think that any good, very good film about gender dynamics and like the complexities and difficulties of that has to have well-drawn male characters as well. Like you can't shut men out of it if you want to say something interesting about them, I think. Yeah, Unless no, I'm, I'm joking, Yama, then, yeah, like, wonderful. Yeah, um, but yeah, but for this film, like for example, yeah, in The Assistant, you know, Matthew McFadden plays this horrible HR person and he's 
incredible. But in this film, <laughs> the two actors I want to shout out are Herbert Nordrum, who uh, plays Ivan in The Worst Person in the World. And I asked Kitty Green about this and she was like, oh yeah, like I'd 100% just seen that and like rewrote the character for him. It, it was written as a German backpacker. And then she realized like that he might be free and like retold it around him. It's very funny. I think it's great value. Happy to see him. And then Toby Wallace of uh, Baby Teeth fame and also Pistol on Disney+. Plus. Um, but yeah, Baby Teeth fame. He, oh, I love him so much. Um, just whenever he pops up, he's he he just brings like such a strange energy. Like he's very slippery. And I think, you know, he's nice until he's not. And, but he's very... Um, like he's not just a nice guy and he's not just a very bad guy. Um, and he has such amazing chemistry with Judah Garner. Um, I want him to be in everything and I'm glad he's in this. Yeah, it is always interesting kind of when people are cast a bit against type in that way. I mean, I suppose it's what like Emerald Fennel, Fennel tried to do with um, Promising Young Woman of kind of like, actually it's more interesting if you cast charming people in those roles. But yeah, I mean, for you, Meg, the thing that made me nervous slightly watching this is, is like, I was worried it was going to do something in its final act, which it sort of hints is possible and it doesn't. And I was very relieved. So I think on my second watch, I actually enjoyed it a lot more. But like, I mean, how did you kind of feel in its final moments? I've seen criticism of it saying that like it kind of falls apart in its final act, but its final act was my favorite. Yeah, I I don't think it falls apart. I think that's like just a, not true <laughs> I think I don't think it falls apart at all I think um it is I'm I'm glad it doesn't go all the way as you said it it, it hints at something like really awful that could happen and pulls it back and then has this sort of wonderful last image that encapsulates like both the fun and the horror that it's been building throughout and mm. I I really like that like it keeps this kind of as Ella said, like sense of fun and like play to it. It doesn't, you know, it's it's not like super serious and solemn, but it's um it's like kind of badass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean it's um it's not her most subtle work, but I think it's all the better for it. And I'm with mm. you. I love that final shot. Oh, Just so sick. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's so fun. I will say as well, like you know, I kind of, I, I interviewed Kitty for Letterboxd and I sort of raised all these things saying that, you know, the ending's been divisive and she was like, I'm baffled. And I agree in the sense that I'm like, well, she 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 was saying, people who saying they wanted it to go further are basically implying that there needs to be a rape for the film to be good. And I was like, I'm glad you said it because, <laughs> but it's true. And it is like, it is absolutely crazy that you know, it, and and it is like decades of cinema, which condition us to be like, oh, so this is when the film gets good, which is absolutely deranged. And then, you know, and, and this then, is when and, she gets punished. Honestly. And, and then on the flip side as well, like the fact that she does go very far with the ending and it is quite a big swing. She'd also said that she was like, well, I couldn't just have them walk away and just be like, oh, well, this happens. Um, which is so cool, I think as well, because I don't know, I feel like the Royal Hotel is showing that like, yes, these things do happen. It doesn't need to go all the way for things to be bad, but also it does need to go all the way for things like for there to be justice. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, you know, it, on one end, women don't need to suffer, but also women have a right 
for revenge as well. I don't know. I think it's great. I love the ending. I love this film. Yes. Only thing that would have um, made it even better for me if they had somehow teamed up with Tommy, the only nice man in Australia <laughs> who is in one scene and he was delightful. Yeah, there's always a sequel in there, seeing where he gets his revenge for other reasons, which I hinted at. But, uh, Meg, you want to go first with your scores in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? Yeah, I might go um, four, three, four for this one. I was really excited to see it uh, after seeing The Assistant and hearing such cool things about it. I think during it, I was, yeah, I was like a bit stressed. I like don't deal well with scary hallways and people being chased so <laughs> but the more I think about it now the, the more I'm enjoying it in hindsight uh-huh. Hello, Hello, what about you? I might go a bit crazy and go four five four um just well because Katie I... Green is so charming isn't she she's, so know, she's just so cool I think I because like it, it's definitely a four in retrospect like you know I appreciate there are certain things that aren't perfect but I do just think the first time I saw it that ending it's just it's so cool and like and I I do think there's not a bad performance in the film the tension builds really well yeah could have watched another hour of it call me crazy 454 and gorgeous because I think as much as I love the assistant like I mean actually that's sterile and you know what, what do you call those, you know, office lighting and everybody looks a kind of bit, a bit pallid and sad. And so like, it's really nice to kind of see her doing things with like landscapes. That being said, I will not be visiting the Australian outback anytime soon. Yes, fours across the board for me as well. So I'm being very boring with my scores, but like, what can I say? It's a good week. Please, good week. Next up, it's how to have sex. Three British girls go on a rite of passage holiday, drinking, clubbing, and hooking up in Malia on the Greek island of Crete of what should be the best summer of their lives. So, Ella, I mean, like, if that, I feel like the rite of passage is, is, is that so many of us has if you go on, like, a very disappointing holiday with your friends just after your GCSEs. I mean, like, was this something that you related to? Uh, yes, Tenerife 2014. Next question. Um, yes, like, you know, note for note. Uh, beat by beat exactly the same holiday which is um, eerie like it's the kind of film I will okay don't listen Molly I will say I wasn't like super super hyped to watch this I I saw it in Cannes so like there weren't kind of any reactions or anything first and I wasn't super hyped to watch it just because I'll be honest I think the title put me off a little bit because I thought oh this is going to be like this is going to be a comedy this is just going to be a kooky like watch as a teenage girl figures out you know this kind of thing and it's very much like not that but it just it's the kind of film that when I was watching it I was like oh I didn't realize that this experience was like worthy of a film until I saw it on film and then you're like oh it 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 just I don't know like it really rattled me and it is also very entertaining in you know in its parts and in its ways another one that really kind of juggles tones very very precisely I think I I don't know how it would play if like if you have no skin in the game like if you haven't been on a holiday like this if, or if like if your if your friends haven't been on a holiday like this or or if or if you don't really know what this kind of holiday is because I think you know I've had conversations with some of my friends who are critics in the US and stuff and they just don't really get it and you know, I think part of that might be obviously disagreeing with Molly Manning Walker's sensibilities and sensitivities as a filmmaker, which 
I fully appreciate, but I do think also half of the joy of it for me was recognizing all of this stuff that, you know, that I've lived through, which I think might be considered cheating in in some way. Like, I think if you deeply identify with the film, obviously it's going to make you, it helps, it helps you to like it more without sort of taking a, a bit of a step back and looking at like how it's made and the wider implications and stuff. Um, I do also think it's expert, expertly made, but I I think the sort of specificity of the experience is both one of the strongest parts of it and something that I'm like a little bit wary of how it will play when it goes much wider I think oh yeah no that's really interesting I mean there do seem to be some sort of universal themes that kind of like you can almost see running through this entire yeah this entire week but yeah there is I think this the film as much as I did like it I, yeah does have that reliance on nostalgia in the way that I felt that After Sun another sort of can film about a holiday that was very kind of like British like managed to break free a little bit more of like you actually having to get like the references to like what a resort in Turkey would be like yeah like After Sun I <laughs> After Sun, I do think that everything with After Sun is fascinating because I, I do feel for every British film made by a woman coming after After Sun because the comparisons are inevitable, even though like the films are so different. Like I haven't seen anything like After Sun since and I don't, I don't, I don't want to. But inevitably when you're like, a British woman has made a film and it's on a holiday, like it's very easy to sort of be like, aha, you liked After Sun. But um, yeah, like you know, even if people didn't like After Sun, I think I've seen far fewer pieces of writing like good and bad about, like obviously there was a lot of personal writing and responses to After Sun, but I think there's more so for How to Have Sex because of the very, very, like the very specifics of it, if that makes sense. Um, Because with After Sun, it's like, you know, parenting, grief, memory, all of these things which are expertly dealt with that allow you to sort of come to it in different places, I think. Um, I love how to have sex, though. Like, let all that be said. But I think it's it's a um, it's an interesting one to sort of wrestle with in that way of like how and where it will find people. Yeah, because I guess it, you just have like sense of like oh, because this is like for you. This yeah. must be what it's like to be a white man and watching most no, exactly. of the films. Like exactly. <laughs> It is an interesting one from my perspective, because obviously I grew up in Canada. I mean, I lived I lived in the UK when I was 11 for a year and kind of like got a sense of like teen culture here, mm-hmm. which struck me as very different. People like age a lot quicker, um, I found. But as like a woman watching this, I think whether you've been on one of those like rites of passage British teen holidays or not there are things in it you definitely recognize and she Molly Manning Walker does like such a great job of painting such a vivid picture of this world and making it feel so detailed and and real that you I think you quite quickly like get what the vibe is and Mm -hmm. you buy into it you know the the design of it the um the focus on like the games they're playing and it's it's quite like reflective uh sort of meditative in a way like you're you're just sitting with them watching them do their thing on this holiday and it feels you know their relationships feel super genuine and real and yeah I think I think you kind of get get the vibe of the holiday whether you've been on on one or not although I can imagine if you have (laughs) been there it's a it's a lot um probably a lot harder to watch although it was deeply hard for me to watch Mm. as well 
but it's quite entertaining as like, I know I keep saying this it's like I'm not <laughs> I'm not enjoying women suffering in any form but um it's entertaining I think in the sense of um all of the actors I think it's more in their mannerisms and sort of the way that they talk and also just like how loud they are. I think that's sort of the specificity for me that I was like, oh, I know she can seem annoying. I know, but also like, I feel like I know her, so she's allowed. Yeah, Mia McKenna Bruce, who plays Tara, the main character, is absolutely sensational. I think she, like, she, yeah, like she's very loud until she's not. She is very bubbly, very funny, but I think she also plays the difficult moments amazingly, like so heartbreaking. Um. But I think also like her friends around her as well, there is that kind of like ride ride or die solidarity among the friends, but also the very performative, this is the best summer of our lives and aren't we all having so much fun? And like, that's annoying to be around. It's really annoying. So I think that's something that, you know, it, it has to be that way in order to to feel true. And, and I think for the fluctuations and emotions to hit, but uh, <laughs> like it can be grating as well. Um, I would argue more from the girls than the boys because I clearly hate women. But um, but the boys are very complex and like strange in this. And again, good, good boys in this film about women. But Molly Manning Walker has said this in a number of Q and A's that like one of the main goals with this film was to not shut men out because like they want boys to see this, like young boys to see what these boys do and be like, oh shit, like that thing I thought was a laugh and was fun. It, you know, really isn't. And it's, it's, I don't know, just everyone involved in this film does that so, it's so subtle and, but just like really powerful without hitting you on the head whatsoever. And I think it's, it's so hard to do that without either feeling like really gross and horrible and sort of manipulative and just, just like nasty to watch as a woman while still hammering home how bad this behavior is, um, you know, while still protecting audiences, I think. Yeah, the the way they capture like the whole journey as like a sort of male bystander to these sort of like sexist microaggressions or whatever you want to call them is like so, so well done because you see every stage and like the thought process plays out so clearly on the screen. And it's important, as you say, to to show what, men are going through and not like judge them and like be preachy about it but to like open up a discussion about it and about why it happens about why it's like so ingrained in the culture that that we have here and yeah she does a great job there's that one scene where like um Tara and Badger are sitting just in silence for like minutes on end and it's um it's so powerful like she could have like had a speech or like he could have had a speech but just watching them like sit there and grapple mm. with not really knowing what to say and I think it's so well done mm. also she could have burst into tears and she doesn't and like you you know you can still tell how affected she is and how bad she feels but Again, it's just like one of like many, many things in this film where it's like you fully understand how she's feeling, but the film never casts any judgments on her whatsoever, which I think is amazing. And it's it's so hard to do that while still pointing very clearly at like, this person is bad, this thing that happened is bad, but she is still, like she's still who she is. She doesn't suddenly get given a, a label or lose her personality because one thing or another happens to her, which I think... Uh, <laughs> a lot of filmmakers seem to find very hard. Um, let, like, there are more and more filmmakers that I think, you know, in the last five, 10 years are kind of grappling with that really, really well. But um, 
as a rule, it's quite a complex thing to not make a woman seem like a victim. Yeah, I think a lot of that really does come down. Like you mentioned Mia McKenna Bruce, who's just phenomenal. And I always, I've always feel like a, some old timey um, Hollywood executive when I say stuff, but like that kid's a star. She is. <laughs> yeah. She's got Mark saying. Uh, Meg, do you want to go first with your scores on how to have sex in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? Uh, I, I think I'll go three, four, four for this one. Um, I was excited to see it after reading about like the reactions at Cannes and stuff, but I didn't anticipate it to be quite as I thought it would be like a hard, more sort of arduous watch than it was. Maybe a bit more like yeah preachy or like a bit of a slog but it wasn't that at all and and I was yeah I was really impressed with it. Ella what about you? So I'm gonna go rogue with this one again and I'm gonna go three five four because three because I didn't yeah I didn't know anything about Molly Manning Walker and the title put me off a little bit. Five well five came from my rewatch um I've seen it twice and the first time I watched it was on a screener and it was good but then I saw it in the cinema at TIFF. And it, like, if anyone, the film will eventually be on movie, but if you have the chance to see it in cinemas, I would highly recommend because the sound design and the score is incredible. You know, I mean, the like the, the score is done by James Jacob, who is a DJ <laughs> and, and at the same time is training to be a counselor. So, you know, great at music and understands people. So all of these things, but yeah. And, and I think also because of like, the lights and the holiday and all of it. I mean, Molly is also a cinematographer as well as she didn't do this film, but she did Scrapper and has just such an amazing visual eye. So anyway, so if you can see it in a cinema, that really bumped up to a five, to be honest, for me. But then in retrospect, I will come down to a four because uh, I don't know why. I think, yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's really good. It is really good. But to be honest, it's the kind of thing as well that because it's her debut, like I kind of want the sort of, Kitty Greenification of Molly Manning Walker in the sense that her first feature is amazing. I want her second one to like change my life. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, it's quite a lot to ask, but. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Molly. <laughs> but yeah, I think, yeah, I probably, I was like, I did a two coming in, even with like the can of it all. For some reason, I thought this was going to be like girl version of the Inbetweeners movie. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. In yeah. some ways it is, but um I was not kind of expecting it to to kind of uh, devastate me and like make me feel kind of like weirdly protective over my younger self. Though having said that, Ella, I was not as cool as you and didn't go on a big party holiday. It I was not to, cool. Uh, there was like I four went to of Amsterdam, us. But <laughs> we rented bikes and mostly went to museums. <laughs> Cute. I, I'm doing that in January for the first time ever. So you're ahead of the game. Um, yeah, so probably at like a two, four, definitely enjoyment. And then like, it's it's tricky because it's like the other films of the week. And like, do I want to give it the exact same as Anatomy of the Fall, which, uh, you know, really moved me and I loved Royal Hotel. So I feel like I'm going to go like 3.999 because I kind of can't give them quite the same ranking. And yeah, it's my podcast. I can do what I want. Right, before we get going uh you guys have one last thing to recommend to listeners ella what is your non-movie recommendation uh, i'm really sorry about this but um i took a week off work last week and my rule now when i take time off work basically the only thing that i watch during that time is old seasons of taskmaster because it's very entertaining but it's very silly and i don't think it counts as tv or art in any way um so last week i watched series nine 
which has Ed Gamble in it. And I saw uh, his podcast Off Menu with James Acaster. They did a live show in London a few weeks ago and I went to that. And so I was like, huh. I'd seen I'd seen the Taskmaster season that James is in, but I hadn't seen Ed's one. So um, big recommendation from me. Um, very, very funny. Yeah. I mean, there is a very dark world out there at the moment. <laughs> and like escapism is valuable. <laughs> Just something being fun and funny, like treasure it. Please, listeners, go and watch Taskmaster. Uh, Meg, what about you? What is your non-movie recommendation? Um, I also went for like something that brought me a lot of joy recently. I am like completely, deeply obsessed with the third season of Only Murders in the Building. Mm. Um, I feel like it's like changed my life (laughs) 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 uh it's it's like got this whole like broadway homage thing going on and like it really spoke to like my teen musical theater nerd that lives inside me um and i was like oh my god that song's so inspired by like the jekyll and hyde musical and i felt like seen and meryl streep is in it and i just love it so much (laughs) yeah i i'm with you i think it's the best season by far i agree and you know, and not just because of Meryl. I think Paul—is uh, it Paul Rudd? Who's Paul in Rudd. It? Paul Rudd. Yes. What a man! What a man! Yeah, another another person tamping down on their natural charisma to kind of play a problematic male. But yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good one. Like, so I might rewatch that actually. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Oh wait, no, I have work to do. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> well, if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. We'll be back in two weeks to talk about Emerald Fennel's Saltburn, Todd Haynes' May December and revisiting The Go-Between for Film Club. Thanks very much for tuning in and if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif and my guests this week were Ella Kemp and Meg Walters. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.